Okay, so hey everyone and welcome back to another episode of Default Global. This is where we connect with global first entrepreneurs and remote work experts from all around the world to share their experiences. Our guest today is Natasha Kiemkar, CEO and founder at Malida Advisors. Natasha, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. Natasha, you have had a fascinating career as a CEO of Malada Advisors, as a, an executive coach, as an investor, and working with big names like uh, OpenTable, Data, AI, Pfizer, and, and so on, right? So with that, can you maybe briefly introduce yourself and share your career journey with us? Sure. Um, well, I spent 25 years in people, talent, and DEI in companies. So I was in-house. I was at large companies like Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson, smaller companies like Ansel and then OpenTable, early stage companies like Garden Health, um, and companies that were sort of later in age and stage, but still pre-IPO. So data.ai, fandom, and others like that. In, in my roles, I had responsibility for the whole function. In the most recent roles that I had, the whole function, soup to nuts, and sat on executive teams. I also um, sit on a couple of boards, some nonprofit boards, some um, co corporate boards as well. So I've seen the interaction in companies from many different angles. And that's 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 awesome. So let's talk maybe about your current company, right? So mm -hmm. I know that you there you 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 kind of focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? So can you maybe how can companies? My first question would be how can companies create this uh, inclusion in, inclusive culture for employees from different backgrounds, especially when we're talking about uh like uh international companies right with different different offices in different countries and even in different continents can you talk more about this part absolutely um diversity equity and inclusion is one of the areas that we focus on at Malida advisors it falls under uh, what we call our org at scale capacity so we help organizations get the results they need by removing the friction the unhealthy friction that they experience in their organizations that maybe they've tolerated for a little bit too long, but that's really getting in the way of them achieving their results. When we think about friction points, one of the critical friction points in organizations is the inability to access and truly tap into the talent that people have in their organizations already. And inclusive leadership is leadership. It's one something that a, a guest on a webinar that, that I had hosted some time ago had said, and it really resonates with us, this idea that our leadership models are no longer working for us. If we don't operate from an inclusive standpoint, we are missing the ability and the capacity of true leadership. Um, when organizations come and work with us on the DEI side, uh, we really do focus on inclusion first. We look for ways to mitigate or remove bias from core processes, but we also enable leaders and people leaders in particular to consider how they can take specific steps and actions to make their teams and organizations more inclusive. Things like how you run your meetings, very obvious, and yet people don't really think about the fact that if you throw a decision on the table, is everybody ready and prepared to contribute? Is one voice speaking up more than others most frequently? And what has that done 
to the contributions of others on the team. So when we look at DEI, inclusion is the way, place we start because diversity is a measure of representation and it is a lagging indicator. And so we advise companies to consider if you focus on an inclusive culture, that is a riding, rising tide lifts all ships kind of moment for you. And, and so we encourage companies focus first on inclusion, look at equity and look to build equity into your processes and decision-making and the diversity will follow. Yeah, and, and you mentioned that uh, the importance uh, of diverse, like a leadership, diverse management styles, right? Um, in, in different environments, especially I'm interested more in, I guess, in the remote first environments, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. how can companies avoid this uh, one size fits all approach when training and supporting managers around the world? Uh, when we're talking about different cultures, again, different, different, different uh, countries. Can you talk more about it? Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that's unique to our company is um, inclusion and management development leadership. Though they are different parts of our offerings, we have our leadership studio, org at scale, leadership at scale. When we approach a, an opportunity with a client, we, it's all integrated. So you don't get inclusion separated, which it never should be, by the way. It should always be integrated because that's what is going to ensure that it sticks with an organization. But what we offer to uh, leaders when they're thinking about how to lead in a remote environment, yes, inclusion looks different in different places, but there are some real basic things that organizations ought to be encouraging their leaders to do. Specifically, you know, this is a really simple one, but just make a note of who's getting those plum assignments or those, those um, frequent assignments that come up. Is it always going to Natasha? Why is it always going to Natasha? What happens if Natasha wins the lottery and moves to um, some remote island that doesn't have any Wi-Fi and can't work remotely or just chooses not to work anymore? What have you done? Um, we are limiting career opportunities, career development growth when we do things like that, but it becomes so unconscious. We don't pay attention, we forget. So simply grabbing a pen, writing down, okay, this assignment just went to so-and-so on this project in this team meeting, who's the next one going to go to? When you see it actually mapped out, you realize, oh, I'm relying on the same people for the same things. And two thirds of my team are staying where they are. They're not growing as much. And frankly, maybe the person who's getting the, the, those assignments all the time is getting a little bored. How would they feel if they had the opportunity to serve as a subject matter expert trainer to train their peers, their colleagues on the team um, on those projects that they've been doing all along? They might be feeling that this is a bit of a drag too. So there are some very, very simple things that we can do. Like I said, write down who's getting those, those assignments as they come up, those special projects. Um, even taking note of that, noticing that makes a difference. But obviously there are things like being mindful of time zones, relying on async first, uh, even for things that uh, we often think about have to be done together, like ideation, you can actually start and make a lot of progress if you start asynchronously. Um, it can actually create a, a really solid foundation for you to narrow down where you want the ideation to happen. So I just encourage leaders to think very tactically first, because you'd be surprised how much 
you can shift just by being very practical, very tactical on the day-to-day things that you have going on in your team. And then you can blossom from there. Um, The one thing that I, because I've worked in global organizations before, I'm going to date myself now, but before there was web conferencing and before we could, we had reliable Wi-Fi in different parts of the world. And I know that is still an issue. Um, You know, nothing beats reaching out and having a conversation one-on-one and making the time and space for that and not letting yourself get distracted. Um, You know, it doesn't matter what time of the day it is. If it's 11 p.m. my time and it's morning for somebody else where I'm speaking with them, they have my full attention. Um, I know that we all have a lot going on, especially working remotely. We have a lot going on in our homes, in our lives. But for the person to know, hey, that noise is there, but I'm focused on you, even saying that, it signals that, yes, there's distractions, but I'm training my attention on you. You're what matters right now in this moment. Um, It sends a message to people that you actually genuinely care and you're making space for them. They're more likely to reach out to you when you do things like that. Those signals really matter. And, and speaking about those one-on-one conversations, right? So in one of your podcasts, you emphasized the importance of delivering um, tough feedback with love and care. That's what, what you said. So how can leaders and managers in global remote teams give difficult feedback in a this constructive and caring way, right? Despite cultural differences and communication barriers. That's a really great question, but... The thing to consider when we're giving feedback is we often let our own hangups get in the way. So it's my perception of how you might interpret what I'm saying. It's my perception of what you might be feeling right now. It's my perception of whether or not um, this is a good time to give you feedback. I always encourage people the one way, first way you can show that you care is simply ask. What is now a good time to have a conversation? Is now a good time to share some perspective that I have with you. Also, I think we've relied far too long on this idea of creating a sandwich of good feedback, good feedback, and in between is the stuff that I really want to talk with you about. And I don't know how to say. Um, When we do things like that, it suggests that I don't know whether my feedback is fully fleshed out. Is it something that I should action or not action? It creates confusion. I think it's much more valuable and it really shows um, thoughtful intention when we sit down with someone and have a conversation that's based on uh, the true issue that you want to discuss. So essentially, if I need to talk with you because, um, you know, you use the wrong template on a slide deck, for example, then I would I would say, let's have a conversation about use what the right template is. Where did that come from? Um, So focus in on the issue, but also start with questions. So asking, here's what I noticed. What was your intention or or how did you think that went? Um, Maybe you have your own perspective on things. So I think first, not creating some sort of artificial sandwich to ask about readiness and um, intention as opposed to assuming And then being specific, making sure that your feedback is something that can be actioned or if it's not, right? So if it's a, I'm not really sure how to address this, say that. 
You know, as leaders, somehow, somewhere, we got this idea that we have to have the right answer all the time. And that's not true. Sometimes when we make things up on the spot, it's actually really bad. It can be more harmful. Um, it can be harmful to the person. It can be harmful to our relationship with them. And it can be harmful um, to, to the, their perception of us. And so to the extent that we're able to actually map out in advance what our conversation is going to be like, be as specific as possible, um, I think that makes a massive difference. But you asked about giving feedback across different cultures. One way you can check for understanding is to simply say, can you reflect that back to me? Or how did that land with you? Ask, right? I think, you know, again, we're assuming over and over and over again. So should I assume that because you're nodding, you agree with me? Or is nodding a signal that you're listening and that you're focused on what I'm saying? I should ask, right? So I could say, how does that land with you? Instead of um, just continuing on with my conversation or saying, okay, you got it. You're ready to go. Well, maybe the person wants to come back and ask you some more questions. So I think that's the last piece on this one is to allow for there to be more conversation about the feedback you've shared. That what we have a when we have a conversation like this, um, we may have a, a time limit on it, right? So this, this will end in X amount of X number of minutes. That's fine, but I should invite you to say, if you want to come back and talk further about this, because you want some time to process it, by all means, I'm very open to continuing the conversation. And I think, again, it just signals all of these things, signal love and care as you're giving feedback. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Uh, totally resonate, res resonates with me. So in, 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 um, in your experience with HR and talent acquisition, what are some typical mistakes uh, from your point of view companies make when hiring outside of uh, outside of their country, hiring globally, right? How can they avoid or overcome these challenges for you know successful remote work environment in their companies? Well, I've seen this most with US headquartered or English speaking headquartered companies where when uh, there's incredible talent that's introduced to us, sometimes people make an assumption that because the English may not be as good, that it automatically comes into play that the talent may not be as strong. Um, I used to see this in Japan a lot where we had, if we had a, uh, an English speaker, a fluent English speaker, that that person's career would go further, that person would get more airtime in front of executives um, but that's all about making the executives more comfortable, right? Who really had the expertise may not have been the, the fluent English speaker. And, and I think that that happens around the world in different, in different markets. For a long time, I was responsible for human resources in a region that spanned Latin America, Africa, Middle East, and Asia Pacific, Japan to Australia, New Zealand. And uh, when we had our regional meetings and we invited execs out, I was very deliberate about seating plans, um, social time. Um, it was like uh, a wedding plan. If you imagine seating at a wedding where you're working with post-its and you try to mix people in the right mix, well, I made sure that each exec was matched with people that I wanted them to meet so that two, three months later, when we went back to 
um, headquarters and did succession planning and talent planning, they knew who that person in Thailand was. They knew that person in Colombia. They had spent some time with them, chatting with them, getting to know them, getting comfortable with people whose English was not a first language and who may have actually been quite uncomfortable about speaking in English. And I think it made a, I, I know actually it made a massive difference. In fact, some of that actually permeated other parts of the business where uh, uh, I used to, in a time when we were allowed to do this, our talent planning profiles for each individual leader, I included a photo of the person so that people would remember who they sat with at that dinner. And I made sure to pair them at every single dinner with the same people, every single social event with the same people. There was obviously other mixing time, but that one, that small group time made it made sure that the memory of that experience stuck with the executives so that when they went back to headquarters and we were talking about these folks in a developmental perspective, from a developmental perspective, there was memory and the proximity bias that happens by, oh, all these people in the US or the English speakers that I'm comfortable with, I'm going to think about elevating them. Now the people in my region also were elevated. And for me, I really wanted to get past that bias of language, culture, um, and geography. Uh, that was really, really important to me. Yeah, and also I know that you are an investor at G Ventures Fund, right? So G Ventures, yes. Yeah, let, let, let's talk about like um global expansion from the investor point of view, right? So, what what advice would you give to entrepreneurs and executives considering who are considering global expansion? How can they use maybe investor resources to make the best decision for international business expansion or hiring? Can you talk more about it? So one of the things to consider is um, expanding into another market actually takes quite a bit of time and effort from your legal, HR, and your finance teams, as well as others. But it's it's quite a lift. So you may find a brilliant mine in, in Spain and your headquarters is in Toronto. But if you want to actually bring that person on board, it's actually quite a lift if you're trying to do it on your own. And unfortunately, Far too many companies are still trying to do it on their own and they're working really hard to break into a market and they're doing it on their own with their own two hands. The struggle with that is you could go a lot faster if you worked with a partner. So um, I'm most familiar with Oyster. It's a terrific platform to bring on board um, people either as contractors or consultants uh, or as full-time employees, but they serve as your on-the-ground support to ensure that you can get people in quick, you can expand and market quickly. And eventually, once you've had some success uh, or are gaining momentum, you can also in parallel then get your, your legal entity set up, make sure that you, you understand how payroll works, how you equity works, all of those elements that are so critical to engaging in an employment agreement with people on the ground in a new market. But I really think you can get you can accelerate your expansion very, very quickly by working with a partner like Oyster. So I, I think that that's that's one. The other is I noticed a lot of founders will, um, if they're not a, a national of the country where their headquarters is, they will want to expand in their home country because they're familiar with it. They understand the culture. They understand how it works. 
but there are biases that come into play there as well. So I would also advise founders to stop for a moment and think about um, what is best for the company and not necessarily for their their specific, their own personal comfort. So I'm not saying don't go back to your home market because there is a real benefit also to building community in the place and giving back to the communities in which you're, you're, you're coming from. And at the same time, it really is about the expansion of your organization and, and there are other there are other factors to consider. So just take a take a beat and think about that. And probably my, my last question, based on your diverse experiences, uh, what do you think the future holds for remote work and global hiring uh, for both startups and enterprises? Thank you so much. That's a really great question. You know, based on the data that we have at our fingertips and our experience with clients, uh, we know that there's, there are a few things that organizations are still stuck on. One is they want to recapture the culture they had before. And the reality is we can't do that. A lot of, a lot of loss, personal loss and grief has happened to us in the past uh, three, four years. And to recapture something that was, um, that culture doesn't exist anymore. We are different. Our organizations are different. We've learned, we've grown, we've expanded um, our, our way of um, operating and interacting. And so I encourage organizations to think about the new culture that they want to have and what mechanisms can they, can they put in place to make that culture come to life? It's not about location as much as people sort of tend to think. A lot of it is the day-to-day -day interaction uh, that I have with the people that I work with most closely. That really is the primary driver of the culture that I experience. The other thing that comes into play is this concern about productivity. So we know from the data that came out from Microsoft last year in their work trends report that 85% of leaders say that it's challenging to have confidence that employees are being productive in hybrid settings, let alone remote. And yet 87% uh, of employees say that they are productive. And the data um, on productivity data that, that Microsoft has been tracking, and of course, they're looking at Teams data, pings, emails, meetings, they've got access to data they can see, even if people are fudging a little bit and faking it a little bit, it's hard to, hard to justify the difference between how leaders perceive productivity and what employees perceive in terms of productivity. Finally, the, the, and the other big hurdle that we need to get past is this uh, perception that leaders and organizations have that came out in uh, some data that Unispace did, uh, shared earlier this year. They showed that 84% of employers say that career prospects would be limited for remote workers. What a shame. What a shame. That is a shocking number. And it shows a lack of vision on the part of organizations if their leaders are saying that 84%, that 84% of leaders would say that remote workers have fewer opportunities for career growth. We're missing out on so much incredible talent around the world and having been in global organizations for most of my career and specifically run a non-US region and a non-headquarters region, I gotta tell you, it's a big miss and a huge mistake. The opportunity we have is to open up our way of thinking. This is about mindset, I believe, very strongly. This is about mindset. What are we willing to accept that could be true? Why are we relying on these old frameworks that aren't relevant anymore? 
why are we relying on our own experiences, right? I didn't grow up with smartphones. My kids did. So when I say you have limited time on your device, what does that mean in terms of the way they interact with their friends, right? For me, I was still pulling on a corded phone trying to, we had one phone in the house. What are you going to do? But for my kids, if they only get an hour a day on their device, they are missing out on an entire ecosystem of community. Um, And so, I mean, it makes it hard for me as a parent, yes. But similarly, in in a work setting, my experience growing up in companies might have been that um, I had FaceTime with leaders or I would be able to sit down at a, a table and have lunch with somebody. We can't recreate that. People don't really want that. So if that's the case, what are the new um, mechanisms and new frameworks that I need to have so that I'm not applying my own experience to today? Because today's different. Things have changed a lot. And it's about time that we start opening our eyes and recognizing what the differences are and building for that as opposed to building for what was. And that's where that's where we really bring a lot of expertise because our team has had so much global experience um, and worked through massive changes like mergers, acquisitions, divestitures, multiple restructuring, CEO changes, you name it. Because we've seen that on global scale, we have a lot more perspective and a lot more openness, I think, to challenging ourselves to rethinking the way we operate. And that's something that we can help our our clients do as well. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, I guess I guess we're good. Uh, so Natasha, thanks a lot for sharing your insights on fostering this uh, inclusive culture and global hiring, this importance of uh, diverse management styles, this uh, the challenges and obstacles of global hiring and just uh, remote work. So we wish you and your company all the best in your journey. Uh, We appreciate your time very much. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.